This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. This is It Was a Thing on TV. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the dregs of humanity. Episode 309, submission number 567, Half Nelson. Half Nelson aired on NBC from March 24th of 1985 to May 10th of 1985. For Depends where you look. It could be nine episodes, might be eight. Some places have seven. So Wikipedia says nine. TV Tango said seven. And also at the same time, I believe both sites count the pilot as two episodes. So use your own judgment there. Okay, here's the intro. you youtube listeners are not going to hear that but let's just say that was awesome take our word for it it was hey greg it's 1985 and nbc has maybe the hottest show in television at that point something called miami vice that's right you've heard of it obviously yes and nbc was looking for something to sort of pair it up with at the nine o'clock hour, because Miami Vice aired at 10, Half Nelson aired at nine. And uh, they found this show, and they actually had a number of other shows, which we'll refer to uh, a little bit later, that uh, came and went just as fast, if not faster, than Half Nelson. So what Half Nelson was about was, it was a comedy, drama, police procedural, if you will. The main star of the show was Joe Pesci, playing a former cop who is working for a private security firm in Los Angeles. That sounds kind of weird. Joe Pesci doesn't really come across as a security guard type. No. Especially because, well, we know Joe Pesci from his 
stuff like Goodfellas and Home Alone. So it's like the opposite of that. Yeah, yeah, and he's not that tall. He's not uh, very uh, overwhelming. He's very diminutive. So I don't get if that's supposed to be some sort of irony. Maybe, but... And I think it's kind of interesting that uh, once we go through the cast list, a lot of the cast was former football players. I think I saw at least three or four of his castmates all played football at some point. Play, I'm talking about pro football, not just college. So, yeah, you've got short Joe Pesci with some very, very big men, uh, and he's a security guard. They're working for a security firm. I just don't buy it. So this is a reasonably early credit for Joe Pesci. And as Greg said, we know him better from specifically Goodfellas. But if you don't know who Joe Pesci is, and with all due respect, you've been living under a rock. Yeah, basically. Yeah. And I believe, wouldn't he have uh, had an Oscar nomination like a couple years earlier for Raging Bull? Yeah, that would have been 1980, yes. And I believe that Raging Bull now has a 4K Blu-ray release from the Criterion Collection. I really wouldn't be surprised. I really wouldn't be surprised if it did. I believe it It, just did, so. It's a good movie. It's deserving of having a Criterion Collection release. So as we said, Half Nelson, it was a quasi-comedy drama procedural type of show. Maybe not exactly the type of show you'd see at 9 o'clock on Friday nights. I think on Friday nights in 1985, you'd actually be sort of either in the drama camp or possibly in the comedy camp. The reason I say that is, again, look at the competition which we'll do it a little early. The comedy camp was in the form of ABC because you had Benson at nine o'clock and you had off the rack at nine 30. What is off the rack? I have no idea what that is. Sounds like where I get all my clothes from. What is off the rack? It is on the list. It's two eighty five. Taking a look off the rack is a comedy series about the L.A. garment industry. So it is about the clothing industry. And I took a look at who's in this show. I'm cringing, Greg. I'm cringing. Hold me back. Oh, wait. Can I take a guess? Yes. Is it Jeffrey Jones? No, it's not. Oh, thank God. No. Two of the stars or two of the people in this show Ed Asner. Okay, that's good. Yeah. Oh, oh Ed Asner is a legend. R.I.P. Dennis Haysbert was in it. Oh, that's great, Dennis oh, Haysbert. We love Dennis Haysbert. The person that made me cringe, Greg. Eileen Brennan. Why is that so bad, Mike? You got to get over this. Have we not had this conversation? We have like to get over this. In the past? Because she was such a heel, it made you hate her for life. She ruined my childhood. She scared me as a kid. Private Benjamin scared you. (laughs) No, no, not Private Benjamin. Private Benjamin's superior. She annoyed the hell out of me. (laughs) 
So, yes, you have Ed Asner and you have Dennis Haysbert. They're sort of being balanced out by that bitch Eileen Brennan. Oh, get over this. No, you, you know, this is like you this is like thing. Chucky being Chucky on Rugrats being afraid of freaking clowns. You have to get over this. I'm over it, but she's on every single thing we take a look at here. It seems. I mean, like I said, we mentioned her like five, six times, but you know, you've got your things that you know upset you, and Chico's got his things that upset him. Eileen Brennan. Fingernails on a chalkboard. That's all I'm going to say about her. So that actually ran for less episodes than Half Nelson, believe it or not. Uh, and actually, a pilot for this, it actually aired as a film on March 24th of 1985. And among the people on the pilot, there's a lot of names here. A lot of names. Dean Martin. That Dean Martin. Yes. Actually, in his final acting role. Oh. Yeah. There are a lot of known names on this pilot. We could be here for a very long time talking about all the names. We'll just go through them really fast. The ones that didn't make the TV show. Morgan Brittany. A favorite around these parts. Tony Curtis. Oh, yeah. Tony Curtis. I am Tony Curtis. Welcome to Hawaii Babylon. We're going to talk about Half Nelson tonight. One day we will talk about Hollywood Babylon, and that episode will be oh, amazing. Oh, we, we got to find episodes of that. That will be a great episode. Yeah, we just have the one VHS compilation on YouTube, but it's amazing if you ever watch it. The, <laughs> the reenactment of Vivian Lee is hilarious. Who knew Vivian Lee liked to have so much sex? So as I was saying, uh, <laughs> Larry Holmes, yes, boxer Larry Holmes. That's right. Wouldn't he have just lost the heavyweight title at this point? Yeah, 85. Yeah, that would be about the time he lost it, yes. Because th that would have been not too long before Mike Tyson came on the scene. Yeah. Because it was like 85, 86, he got the title. Yeah, who did he lose the title to? Was it uh, Sphinx? I know next to nothing about boxing. I got to look. Hold on a second. Well, while you're doing that, I'm going to go through, through some more names that were on the pilot that didn't make the series. Again, huge names. George Kennedy. Oh, George Kennedy. Oh, George Kennedy is, is timeless. Terry Kaiser, who we've talked about plenty of times. That's Bernie, right. Bernie. Bernie. And, and speaking of Bernie, how about Bernie Capel? Oh, yeah. Bernie Capel. Who, who we've talked about plenty of times. Yes. Paul Kreppel. Yeah, from It's a Living. From It's a Living. We talked about Dean Martin. How about John Matuzak? That's right. That's a name we don't talk about that often. Yeah. Of course, you know him as Sloth from the Goonies. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah, 85 was his year. The Goonies and, well, maybe not necessarily his TV movie, but, yeah, he, he had a memorable 85. Yeah. Sloth, yes. Yeah. And also former Oakland Raider. Former Oakland Raider, yes. And actually, now that I think about it, what do I have right here in my office? If I don't drop it and break it, it's sloth. my sloth bobblehead from Akron last year. Yeah, he's wearing the Superman shirt. He's also wearing some of Benoodle's fur, but yeah. Hey, you guys. 
Okay. So, it, it, it's kind of coincidental that we mentioned John Matuzak and Sloth, and I've got that sitting like literally three feet away from me. Okay. I did find on Wikipedia, True Pikes Census Wikipedia, that Larry Holmes did lose the uh, heavyweight title to Michael Spinks. Uh, but here's the crushing part if Larry Holmes had beaten Michael Spinks, he would have tied Rocky Marciano's record of 49 wins without a loss. Oh. Sad. Tough break. So yeah, needless to say, just going over that TV movie, a lot of quality names, a lot of people who went on to big things, a lot of people who made names themselves. And let me just give you the synopsis of the TV movie. Uh, Since we don't have that much information, uh, even the episode guide we're going to use is sort of sort of mediocre to say the least yeah uh yeah because there's nothing on imdb tv tango has nothing i've done some research and i've got a number of episode uh recaps uh capsules i don't even know if i can necessarily match them up to specific days and there's a reason why so uh rocky nelson is a new york city cop who after making a major bust and selling the rights of his story to hollywood decides to try his luck out as an actor. However, when he gets there, the directors think that he is too short to be an actor. He is then approached by someone who offers him a job at a Hollywood security agency because he would fit in there being an ex-cop. And while working there, he could come in contact with some Hollywood heavyweights who would give him the break he needs. And at the same time, he gets to live in Dean Martin's guest house. Oh, that's great. Oh, you know, there's parties every night there at Dean Martin's guest house. Does the moon ever hit him in the eye at one point in the episode like a big pizza pie? A moray or less. That was bad. I'm sorry. That's a moray is what Greg was talking about. Duh. Yeah, a moray or less. More or less. Never mind. So, yeah, it got picked up for a series, didn't last all that long, ran about a month and a half, uh, right before, again, Miami Vice, best show on TV. Uh, And also, I I think uh, we were talking about the schedule, and I think we sort of got a little sidetracked there, talking about the pilot and all that. So it went up against Benson and Off the Rack with that bitch Eileen Brennan on CBS... I don't even have to say what it ran up against on Friday nights at nine o'clock. Was it Dallas? We've talked about it plenty of times. Of course it was Dallas. Of course. Of course it was Dallas. What else is on at nine o'clock on CBS? Dallas. Dallas. That's in the 1980s. That's all that's on Friday nights at at nine o'clock. And I can't even count how many shows we've talked about that Dallas has just trampled. I mean, we talked about misfits of science. We've talked about, I mean, just again, the list goes on and on and on. And I know uh, we talked Dallas a number of times, four, five, six times. Manimal. Manimal was beat by Dallas. Oh, yeah. We did talk about Manimal just recently in Manimal Revisited. You're right about that. Yeah. So the pilot did air on March 24th of 1985. And on March 29th of 1985, so actually, you know what? They probably aired this 
they're calling it a TV movie. I'm sure it got picked up before. So the pilot, it aired on Sunday night. So that's why it's, it's five days later. The 24th was a Sunday and the series proper debuted on Friday. Looking at the listings for Sunday, March 24th, 1985, Half Nelson actually aired the pilot. It was a two-hour pilot, so or a two-hour movie, two one-hour episodes. And the competition that night, I don't know, this is... Meh, it's sort of meh. I mean, I'm going to say that. It's, it's sort of meh. It went up on CBS against Crazy Like a Fox. Oh, yeah, with Jack Warden. With Jack Warden, yeah. And and the reason I'm like sort of eh is the 10 o'clock hour was Trapper John M.D. Oh, yeah, that'll kill it. Trapper John M.D. Yeah, but it's sort of late in the run for Trapper John M.D., That's I true. believe. So. so maybe it's sort of waning at this point. And then on ABC... It aired against a movie called California Girls. I don't think it had to do with uh, the David Lee Roth song. Oh, I wish. Wouldn't it have been awesome if David Lee Roth had a cameo in it? You wish they could all be California Girls? Zippity, zippity, zap! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, by the way, did I ever mention... That remember when David Lee Roth had his own radio show after Howard Stern went to Sirius? I swear to God, my brother was like one of the one of five people that listened to it because he f- loved the sh- that show. <laughs> oh my gosh! And actually, yeah, the the. Uh... The blurb that I have for the pilot actually is the same blurb that I mentioned earlier, almost word for word. All right. So again, five days later on Friday, the 29th of April, we had a series premiere proper with the episode, The Deadly Vase. Ooh. Rocky dons a number of disguises in his quest to find the thief who lifted a priceless vase and murdered someone in the process. Oh. But like I said, it's a police procedural of sorts, so nothing really uh, out of the ordinary there. Uh, But we have names. Uh, Oh, oh, and the thing is, we we didn't even go over the cast after Joe Pesci. Yeah, that's right. Let's do that. So returning from the pilot, the two-hour movie, in addition to Joe Pesci, we had Fred Williamson. Oh, yeah, Fred Williamson. And Fred Williamson... Among other things, he was a three-time AFL All-Star. So there's your football connection. Yeah, that's right. Okay. I'm sorry. I just I'm looking at the some of Fred Williamson's work on uh, IMDb. Oh, well, remember he was on Super Train. He was on Super Train. Remember? Okay, he may be on Super Train. But I'm looking at one of his movies that he's known for. What is it? And I can't say it. No, I no, Greg. No, we're going to get letters. No, <laughs> oh, I'm going to look at it. Hold on a second. <laughs> what year? So I can look, look at, at the it. fourth one. What fourth, year? Fourth one on, on the right. 1974. 1974. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh say, no! 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 <laughs> no! <laughs> yeah, we're not going to say it. And the thing is, he played the title role in that movie. Kids, you have to do your own research on this. We're not saying a word. Or the movie oh he gosh, did in 1972 and in 1973. Oh, God. Yeah, I was just, oh, my God. Yeah, I just noticed those. Oh, my oh gosh. God, we're, go, we're going to hell if we say those words. Why? Oh. No, no, I, I, I'm treading very carefully here as I take a look to see. I'm, I'm treading very carefully when I take a look at what the, the synopsis of this is. Yeah, we can't use that movie title nowadays. No, <laughs> no, we couldn't use. I'm surprised they could use that movie title 50 years ago. Oh yeah. my gosh! So yeah, the, the less we say about Fred Williamson's movies, the better we are. Oh my gosh! But hold on, Mike. He was in the roller disco episode of Chips, which we will oh, cover one day. Which we will cover one day. Yes. Oh my gosh. And also among the regular cast members, uh, we sort of teased it last week. We said somebody who would go on to bigger and better things about 18 months later at the same network at NBC. Yeah. Playing Annie O'Hara, Victoria Jackson. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's right. We'll be the last time we'll talk about her this year, which will be, I don't know, about a month from now. Yeah, it's going to be about a month from now. Uh, we're not going to mention what it's about, but I actually had what we're going to talk about in that episode. I had it on tape. That's right. You never know I had it on tape, but yeah, I did have it on tape. That's right. You did. You're, yeah. I would. I don't want to spoil what it is because I want it to be a complete surprise. So let's just say next month we will be talking about an episode of SNL that she was on. Yes. Yes, and this would have been her first season on SNL. Yeah. Yes. So it'd be 86, 87. But correct. Yeah, that's right. But you know what? She was also in UHF. Yes, yeah, she was. Another favorite of ours. Some other names uh, that appear in the series, uh, including this first episode. Again, more football people playing Bo, the legendary Dick Buckus. I mean, what else needs to be said? Hall of Fame linebacker for the Bears. Number 51. Yeah. But he would go on uh, a couple years later on NBC. He'd be on uh, My Two Dads. Yes, he would. And let me just say, My Two Dads theme song, very underrated. I agree. How about another football player? And this guy was a big man. Big mamma jamma. And we talked earlier about how 85 was John Matuzak's year uh, being sloth in the Goonies. Yeah. Realistically, we could say 1984 was this guy's year. Oh, definitely. Uh, because Police Academy started playing Kurt Bubba Smith. Oh, that's right. Officer Hightower. Yeah. Among many things. Uh, and for the Married with Children fans out there, he plays maybe one of Al's best foils ever in the episode, all night security dude. He plays spare tire Dixon. That's right. Spare tire Dixon. Classic episode. One of my favorites. Uh, we also have uh, Dean Martin returning 
So maybe, yeah, we said it was his final acting uh, gig. Apparently it wasn't just the pilot movie. He was in the entire series. Yes. Uh, but other names, uh, non-football names, uh, playing Detective Hamill in this series is Gary Grubbs. Gary Grubbs. Yeah, you probably have heard of him. He was on Will and Grace. Okay. He was Harlan Polk on Will and Grace. But again, let's make two Married with Children connections because this is where I know him from. He was Delbert in the season two, two-part season premiere, Poppies by the Tree. Ooh, Poppies by the Tree. But also, yeah, but also he was a car salesman. He was Cal Stevens. Boy, I wonder who he's trying to imitate with that name, Cal Stevens. Hmm. Cal Worthington. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Cal Worthington. Uh, He played car salesman Cal Stevens who sold Al Bundy a lemon in part two of the final season two-part episode. Actually, I think it's a three-part episode now that I mention it. Requiem for a Chevy weight. Where Al's uh, car dies and him and Jefferson actually, again, ridiculous. And we talked about the ridiculousness of the last season of Married with Children. Al and Jefferson go to Cuba and actually... Jefferson is friends with Fidel Castro. And Fidel Castro has got the part that uh, that Al needs for his Chevy. Don't ask. Don't ask. Just really weird. Yeah, it's 1997. They didn't have 3D printers yet. It, it, well, and also, again, 11th season. They're running out of good material. But in this first episode, again, more names. And again, very big names. As herself is Julie Newmar. Oh. Yeah. Catwoman. Oh, since she goes down here, I better do this. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I think mine was more like an Eartha kit, but yeah, we get it. Playing Seymour Griffith. I don't think we've talked about this person yet. And I'm sure we're going to talk about this person uh, in the very near future. Robert Reed. Oh, yeah, Robert Reed. Of course, Mr. Brady. Yeah, and actually, I think we did talk about him because he was, I believe, a celebrity guest on the premiere week of Stumpers. Yes. So that may be the only time we've talked about him at this point, 309 episodes in. But even more names. Playing Morgan, how about another uh, Batman connection? Cesar Romero. Oh, the Joker. So, yeah, we, so we have the Catwoman and we have the Joker, yes. Oh, I, I'm, I'm not going to make any jokes and, about oranges. I'm sorry with Cesar Romero. Oh, no, don't. And two more names. Again, two. there's so many names on this. Playing the director is Donald O'Connor. Donald O'Connor. Big time movie star from uh, the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Okay. It didn't really do a lot of television. And last but not least, how about this for an an 80s name appearing as Hunk? Hunk. Don't know. Yeah, Hunk. Yeah, I don't know how this person got the name Hunk, but when you hear the name, maybe it'll make sense. Spuds McKenzie. 
The dog Spuds McKenzie? The, the dog Spuds McKenzie, yes. <laughs> How big was Spuds McKenzie in like 1985, 1986? Oh, Spuds McKenzie was everywhere in the 80s. He was the coolest thing ever. He was. And somewhere in my basement, I know I've got a uh, light up uh, Spuds McKenzie. Because my grandmother used to own a bar and somehow after she passed away, I ended up with her bar's Spuds McKenzie uh, light up figure. Yeah. And I believe, fun fact, I don't think we mentioned this in the Bud Bowl episode, but Spuds McKenzie was the owner of Bud Light in Bud Bowl 1. Touchdown! No complaints from that man. (laughs) That's the first time I've heard that. That's great. Oh, my gosh. All right. Let's go to uh, episode two. And episode two is titled Uppers and Downers. Oh, (laughs) I'm already scared to take a look at this. Rocky poses as a health and exercise expert when he investigates the death of a Beverly Hills fitness guru. And I'm trying to see who may be the fitness guru in this episode. Uh, I've got it down to two names, and well, we'll, we'll mention both names because they both, I think, uh, their resumes stand on their own merits. Unfortunately, I don't have a name for either of these people's characters, which again is probably due to the incompleteness of this series. One person is Nancy Stafford, and Nancy Stafford, she was on Matlock for the uh, entirety of that series, playing couple of characters, uh, primarily Michelle Thomas in later episodes. And she was also on St. Elsewhere for three seasons. And actually, uh, the three seasons she was on, 83 to 86. So Half Nelson was in the middle of that. Oh, and also Nancy Stafford. I know where I recognize that name from since I mentioned St. Elsewhere. She was on the week of Match Game Hollywood Squares with St. Elsewhere's cast. Plus another week, I believe. I think she did two weeks of Match Game Hollywood Squares. But the other name, no, it couldn't be her because this person would have been in her mid-50s at this point, almost uh, actually in her 60s, Barbara Kaysan. And we've talked about her in the past, I think, because she played Gary Shandling's mother on The Gary Shandling Show. Oh, awesome. Taking a look here, the reason we talked about her previously, she played Chloris Phoebus on Carter Country. Oh, jeez. Another one of those shows that we don't really want to revisit. Let's go to episode three. Episode three is titled Diplomatic Immunity. Diplomatic Immunity. Okay, well, hold on. You may have heard me the way I said that. Again, IMDb says diplomatic immunity, but I think Wikipedia has it right. Diplomatic immunity. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense, immunity. Yeah. We'll just go by what Hans from the Mighty Ducks said in Lethal Weapon 2. Diplomatic immunity. just been revoked. Rocky dons a disguise to infiltrate an auto theft ring operated by a foreign ambassador. 
I wish I could say and play that foreign ambassador is Vladimir Putin, but I can't. Oh, if only. If only. Uh, yeah, I was saying that would be funny if, if he did. But again, we got some names in this episode playing Shelly Shapiro in this episode. And, you know, that sounds like a good uh, ambassador name. So I think this person may have been the ambassador. Henry Gibson. Oh, Henry Gibson. Laughing. Laughing. That's right. And, of course, yeah. for you youngins, you probably best know him from Inner Space because he played Morton Short's boss in Inner Space. And the other name in this episode, uh, no character name here. One of your favorites, Greg. John Saxon. Oh, yeah, John's. Hey, Mike, we'll be talking about John Saxon in our next episode. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. And, of course, I think I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but I have a signed card of his from Americana. And I knew you were going to mention that. Yes. Yes. Because I think you got that, like, right around the time he passed away. Yes. And, of course, John Saxon, also best known for being in A Nightmare on Elm Street. That'll take us to episode four. Episode four is titled Nose Job. Nose Job. An actress hires Rocky to protect her from a stalker while she films her television series. And really, no names that we haven't talked about already. Uh, just the normal cast, Joe Pesci, Fred Williamson, Victoria Jackson, Dick Buckus, Bubba Smith, Gary Grubbs, Dean Martin. Nobody really of note uh, among the guests. So that'll take us to episode five, which is called Chariots for Hire. Yeah, Chariots for Hire. Ha ha ha. Chariots of Fire. Yeah. Rocky manages to con Chester Long and Lieutenant Hamill into peddling a pair of rickshaws as part of his plan to catch the killer of a Hollywood star. Well, you know, we did talk about Hollywood star the previous episode, so maybe... I don't know. Like I said, there, there's a lot of ambiguity here because there's not much uh, known about these episodes. Uh, chariots, rickshaws make sense, but also the previous episode, Nose Job, had to do with an actress being murdered, so shoulder shrug here I think is the best way we can phrase it. Yeah. And really, there's no guests in this episode, so we're going to go to episode six, The Beverly Hills Princess. Rocky gets some unwanted help from a precocious teenage girl whose father has been framed for murder by a group of blackmailers. We've got a couple of names in this episode. We, we don't have one for the uh, princess, if you will, but Rich Little played a character in this episode. Oh, Rich Little. And actually, knowing Rich Little, he probably played a bunch of characters in this episode. Oh, he probably did. And then playing Dexter Breen in this episode... We've talked about him in the past. I don't remember where, but we, we did talk about Marjo Gortner. Taking a look at his IMDb, trying to figure out where we talked about him. He was, I believe, on a week, at least a week, of Break the Bank in 1976. But I thought there was another episode uh, where we talked about him. All right. With that out of the way, we got the final episode. Episode 7 is called Malibu Colony, and I have no information about this episode. So, (laughs) 
what can we say? Uh, like I said, there's just a lack of information on uh, this TV show. Nothing we could do about that. We're not going to fake the information. Uh, we're going to try our best to, to get through it. So, yeah, again, there's some ambiguity here because we don't have a lot of information about the show, especially accurate information. And actually, the fifth episode, which was supposed to air on April 26th, 1985, IMDb and Wikipedia say episodes aired that day, but it didn't because doing uh, research, TV listings and also at least one other source on the Internet say that uh, what appears to be the show that uh, Half Nelson replaced came back and aired its last episode a show called Codename Foxfire. And it looks like Wikipedia says both episodes aired on May 3rd. But again, sources say May 3rd and May 10th each had one episode. And uh, <laughs> again, it got killed by Dallas. And on May 17th, NBC replaced Half Nelson with a repeat of V. Remember V? That was a big, big thing. Well, you were barely born then. Yeah. But v, v was a big oh, miniseries. V, v was a big cultural phenomenon back in the Oh, it was, it was huge. Yeah. Although this is probably near the end of V, because V the series was only like a year. I think it was a little bit longer. It might have been a year and a half, but I'm pretty sure it was gone by fall of 85, because I think it was maybe a mid-season replacement in 83-84 because oh, yeah, I think they... the V miniseries aired in late 83 and it got picked up as a series well, I think they did not like too a, long after. I think they did like a sequel miniseries like right after because it was like, oh, we got to capitalize on the wave. Everyone loves V, so we got to do like another miniseries. And that was like, I think, a backdoor pilot to the series. The second I, I think you're right because yeah they, they did like i don't want to say v the next generation but yeah they did like a v returns or something i remember that yes so yeah uh that was, may have been a burn off as well because again i don't think v even sniffed fall of 1985 so yeah it seemed like whatever nbc was putting in at friday at nine o'clock it was getting canceled just as quick because we've said it once we'll say it again you just can't beat Dallas. If you look at it, we had V, we had Half Nelson. Looks like this uh, code name Foxfire was on at that time. We talked about Misfits of Science, got leveled by Dallas at that time. Just no beating Dallas. Unfortunately, these episodes cannot be purchased for sale. There is no DVD release, unsurprisingly, to say the least, I think. You can find most of the episodes on YouTube, though. Not many people watched it. The ratings is getting clobbered by Dallas. I don't need to repeat myself, but yeah. Dallas had its way with Half Nelson. And really, I think that's all we can say. So Half Nelson, yes, it had Joe Pesci. Yes, it had Bubba Smith. Yes, it had Dick Butkus. Yes, it had Victoria Jackson, but yes, sadly, after about a month and a half, it fell into obscurity and it became just another thing on TV. Any final comments you'd like to add, Greg? 
Uh, no, not really. Yeah, again, there's not much uh, about this show. Uh, we don't even have even a halfway accurate episode guide. There's really not much to say, unfortunately. There's not even anything that we could do for eBay prices right, believe it or not. Oh. So you get uh, a reprieve there. Wow! Uh, but, Joe, is that a problem for you? Do people ever think, oh, there's this big-time uh, TV movie yeah, actor. I'm going to get a piece of him. Yeah, I remember one time there was, uh, I was uh, walking uh, with Liza Minnelli. She was appearing at uh, Radio City Music Hall. And we're walking towards the backstage with a couple of security guys. And there were some, you know, there was some guys with girls there and everything. And the girls were saying hello. And the guys were saying, you know, the girls said, oh, that's Joe Pesci. And the girls said, oh. And the guy said, oh, what wise guy. What good fellow. I gave him a sla- Oh. You know, in your third year of high school, come back, come back. Is it gone? Uh, Is it gone? On the uh, program tonight, NFL number one draft pick Dan Wilkinson from Ohio State. Randy Travis, uh, of course, will be out a little bit later. And right now we're talking with Madonna. So. (laughs) Two years ago on It Was a Thing on TV. Back in 2007 and 2008, Game Show Network showed reruns of Beat the Clock, uh, generally like really late on Saturday nights. And this, oh, this still just irritates me to this day. They pulled Beat the Clock from the schedule, and I'm not even joking. I think it was the Tuesday episode from the final week. You've had us hanging. No, you've had me hanging for all these years. So I really, really need closure. Did Guy and Rolna Hovis actually win that week? Did they win a bonus stunt? Did Monty Hall thank the cast and crew and and uh, and, and Jack Nars, who was the announcer and an executive producer of the show? What happened? We need closure. The pronunciation of which has been a source of contention, but if you were to ask the host, Tom Kennedy, the proper pronunciation is... And are you going to say that the brother of Jack Nars is wrong? Of course you're not. But have you heard how Jack Nars used to say it? Because remember, at the end of Beat the Clock, they would say, stay tuned for next over most of these CBS stations. But Jack Nars did not always say that. Stay tuned for Woo, next over most of these CBS stations. No, that would be the gritty reboot starring Ric Flair. Woo! That's right, folks. I'm hosting this game show with my gauntlet of villains for 25,000 hours. Woo! There was a contestant, and he won the main game. And in his excitement, he he broke his ankle. Oh. Oh! So they couldn't run the gauntlet with him then, because obviously he's probably in an emergency room, you know, getting his ankle worked on. And then you had Dennis, who was played by Gregory Itson of 24. And yeah. 
future installment, Strip Mall. Yeah. And, of course, Gregory Hudson playing Charles Logan, maybe one of the greatest heels in television history. Mm-hmm. Is Strip Mall on the list? Uh, no, it is. I'm putting it on the list. Is that the Joy Brown show? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, Joy yes, Brown yes. with Chris Wilde, Jonathan Mangum, and yeah. I forgot about that show. Yes. Yeah. No, I didn't forget about it, but yeah, that's a good entry. You're gorgeous. Episode 310, submission number 891, Beta. Few revisited. Few aired on CBS from April 23rd, 1979 to May 30th of 1980 for 273 episodes. Decisions and $25,000 in cash. A combination guaranteed to make you say. And now here's the star of our show, Tom Kennedy. Oh, yes. How are you? Good to see you today. Welcome to our show. We pronounce it. Yes, we're talking about few again. Three years ago, when we did this original episode, episode 31, There may have been about a dozen or so episodes out there. But then to like the surprise of every television fan, every game show fan out there, in August of 2021, Buzzer acquired the rights to air few. And people rejoiced. People were like, wait, this has got to be some sort of fever dream. This has not aired on television in 42 years and really of the shows that buzzer could have picked up they got few i mean it's sort of mind-boggling and baffling it's like yes we the fan base know it's a good show but you know the fan base is maybe a thousandth of a percent of all television viewers a very small microcosm, as yeah. it were. Yeah, I guess the first question that everybody was asking themselves, first of all, it's great to be back. I had to miss the first episode because Gremlins. But the first question, I guess, on everybody's mind was, how? Well, I know for a very long time, Burt Sugarman's asking price was on the high side releasing few even though again it ran for just about a year that's what you call that cult classic as we are living in the future we know the episodes were on youtube for a long time before buzzer got a hold of the package and ran almost all of the episodes Yeah, uh, I mentioned at the end of uh, Half Nelson, episode 309, that as of now, I think about 160 episodes have aired, 150, 160, maybe even closer to 170 episodes. 
And again, that's out of uh, the number that I mentioned at the beginning of the show, 273. And if I do a quick little search on uh, Buzzer's website, if we look at uh, this coming Monday, as of the time we're recording this, if we look at uh, Monday, the 26th episode, the episode number that is airing on the 26th is episode 230. So they're about seven weeks, eight weeks away from the final episode. Not terribly far away. And taking a look at uh, gameshows.fandom.com, right now they just started week 47 this past Thursday, the 22nd of uh, September. Uh, We have week 48, 49, 50, 51, 52, 53, 54, 55, 56. So we have, it looks like nine weeks left. So if all goes well and they do this four episodes a week thing, we should see the final episode a few, assuming that uh, every episode is converted, assuming every episode is going to run. uh, There's not going to be any sort of uh, missing episodes or unaired episodes. We should get to the final episode a few probably around between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Because, yeah, so if we're talking uh, nine weeks left, uh, that's about 45 episodes. That's about uh, four episodes a week, about 11 weeks away. That would put us like smack dab, like between Thanksgiving and Christmas. So maybe a little Christmas gift may be coming our way a little early. Who knows? Well, we've seen the finale. The, The finale is out there. We, we know how it ends. Well, and getting back to Buzzer's acquisition, they haven't shown every episode at this point. They started off by showing episodes one, two, four, five, six, seven in a marathon the Sunday before it appeared on the regular schedule. We, we actually did, covered that as a live watch. We did cover that as a live watch. And yeah, we didn't get episode three for whatever reason, if there was some sort of political incorrectness or lost episode or what have you. Yeah, we did uh, cover that uh, as a three-hour live watch, you and and me, Chico, yes. But they didn't start on episode eight on that Monday. They started, I believe, episode 78. So we missed 70 episodes and... I'm guessing once they get to the finale and once they do another cycle through like they seem to do that sometime probably around March or April, possibly knock on wood, we may get to see those first 70 episodes. We get to see the genesis of the show. But yeah, as is right now, we've seen, gosh, probably close to about 20 weeks of celebrity episodes and I think we've seen, uh, in terms of regular episodes, about 11 or 12 weeks. So we've seen pretty much close to uh, like 40 weeks of episodes, give or take, maybe a few less than 40, maybe 35 or so. But again, more episodes than we could have ever guessed we would have seen this time when we originally covered this topic three years ago. Yeah, and if I can recall correctly, there were 56 total weeks 
of episodes. So a little over a year's worth of shows. The first half of the run, of course, were the regular games. And the second half were the celebrity games in which the two players were teamed up with celebrities in a noble yet short-sighted attempt to breathe some life into the show. Like other shows, specifically ones that we're going to talk about in the not-too-far future. Hey, Mr. Testa, did that work? Nope. Does it ever work, Mr. Testa? Nope. All right, so the game itself... The idea was to ascend a board. It had six levels. On the bottom five levels, there were five boxes. And on the top level, level six, there were three boxes. So it was essentially keystone shaped. Yeah, so so it, it looks like a square, but you have a little, a little row on top. So it does kind of sort of look like a keystone shape. And the idea was to get to the top of the board, conquer all six levels, or at least the sixth level is the most important. You don't have to get all six levels. We'll talk about that in a moment. But you want to get to level six and succeed at level six, and you're the winner of the round. If you aren't able to get to level six for some reason, then the other team uh, wins the round. And the people who are on offense are called chargers. They're charging up the board. And also they're charging off stage when they uh, leave for the blockers, the defenders, to put the blocks on the board. The blocks, since we mentioned it, what they do is uh, they are placed by the blocker or the blocking team. Six of them go on the board. There's some stipulations, though. You can't put more than one on the sixth level. Because if you put more than one there, it's going to make it really tough. So maximum of one on the sixth level to start. We'll get to that in a bit. And then on any of the bottom five levels, you can't put more than three on any single row, on any level. And you only get a total of six blocks. But aside from those rules, fair game. Yeah, and the thing is, you see the different strategies coming out now that we have 150 or so, 160, 170 episodes. You definitely get an idea as to strategies and what works, what doesn't work. We'll talk about strategies a little bit later. So the team that's charging gets 60 seconds to ascend this board. And again, the only level that really matters is level six. If you can naturally go up, get one from level one, get one from level two, get one from level three, four, five, six, that's fine. However, you hit a block, that's going to take off five seconds. And if time runs out, the charging team loses. The blockers win. However, there is a lifeline here. And the lifeline is called the long shot. And what happens is if you call long shot, you can only call it on levels one through five. And we've seen this on a number of buzzer episodes where they're on level six. Once you get to level six, you're committed to level six. So you can't call long shot on level six. And Tom Kennedy will even mention that saying on level six, you cannot do long shot. You have to play it out. 
If you call long shot, the time stops. You automatically go from whatever level you're at to level six. There's one little catch though. I mentioned that there can be up to one block on level six. That's just in a normal blocking position. If long shot is called, the blockers get to put a second block up there, assuming there already is a block on level six. So the odds drastically change from two to one in your favor before long shot of getting a question to two to one against the charger finding a safe block because you have one good box and conceivably two bad boxes, two long yeah. shots. It's basically, they may or may not have put a previously placed block there. And again, we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. We'll talk about a lot of the happenings because a lot of stuff has happened on this show uh, in the, again, 160, 150, 170 episodes that have aired thus far. So if you get a block on level six, again, charging team loses, blockers win. If time runs out, again, blockers win, chargers lose. The only way the Chargers can win is if they get to level six and get a blooper, whether it's uh, in a long shot or just in a regular gameplay, if they get a blooper and answer it correctly. Oh, did we even mention what bloopers are? Uh, no, we didn't. Um, in each of these squares in play, there is a phrase with one phrase that is purposefully edited creatively i must say to be punny for example one of my favorites and i cannot believe this slipped by the censors i don't remember what show it's from it was from a celebrity show it may have been one of the betty white episodes i think i'm not 100 percent sure but the the hard th- uh, thing on a bird's face is called it's pecker Get get it hard, Becker. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. It, it, it's well, juvenile humor, but it serves a purpose. And obviously, you would replace the pecker with the beak. See, that's all as simple it is. And yeah, there's a lot of puns, a lot of wordplay, a lot of double entendres, a lot of risque clues. It was the seventies on CBS, Mike. It was the seventy. Well, it was the seventies, number one, but also, I, I think we can attribute that a little bit to Jay Wolpert. Oh yeah, he he liked pushing the envelope. He did. He made and, a career out of it. And we even talked about that uh, in the Double Dare episode, Double Dare seventy six, because on the final episode, maybe one of the funniest segments in game show history, if you've never seen it. Uh, the clues that led to the answer, a boomerang, in terms of like uh, people would uh, would tie this hard piece of wood around their legs and sound. Yeah, a lot of double entendres that had the crowd hooting and hollering. And the thing of it is, it took a while to get there. So, so yeah, you got more and more risque clues. It's like. The Double Dare final episode, he wanted to go out with a bang. He sort of wanted to say, 
maybe not necessarily screw you Goodson Todman or screw you CBS, but yeah, this is my show and we're going to end it the way I want to, darn it. Basically. I mean, I see something like that and then I see uh, the end of Hitman, which was classic in and of itself, as Jay Wolpert giving a gigantic you to whatever network his show might be on. Well, we'll talk about that in January. Yes, we will. Oh, but speaking of, did we mention who announced this show? Oh, uh, that would be some guy by the name of Robert Ray Roddy, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yeah, and at this time, he would have been doing soap. April of 79 would have been the end of season two. So He's a hot property at this point, you'd think. Oh, between, yeah. between soap and few, and obviously we know down the road, 1983, he'd be on Pressure Luck. He'd be on Hitman too. So we just talk about Hitman. Yeah, yeah, Hitman, Pressure Luck, and then uh, obviously we know what happened in late '85, early '86 after Johnny Olson passed. Yes. Yeah, he, uh, he became the announcer uh, for The Price Is Right, and he was in that role for. Well over 17 years, I think, before his passing. Can I just point out one thing? You hear his narration on soap. He is very calm, measured, studious. When he's doing or prices right or price your luck, not so much. Oh, no, he is very into it. His voice is cracking a ton. But you know what? We love him for it. Mm-hmm. That's what makes him unique. Absolutely. So getting back to the game itself, in any given round, the Chargers win only if they get that level six question. That blooper, if they correct it, they win. If they get it wrong in a long shot situation, if time runs out, uh, whether they're in a block or not, if they hit uh, the long shot or uh, the, the regular block, uh, after calling long shot, they lose, the blockers win. In the second round, the roles are reversed. The blockers become the chargers, chargers become the blockers. Gameplay stays the same. And then if there's a third round, the champion has the option of charging or blocking. And if there's no champion, then a coin toss determined who's the challenger per se and who's the champion and we should add that for rounds one and two initially the uh challenger again air quotes there for challenger the the person who's not designated the champion that may have lost the coin toss or what have you they get to choose whether to charge or to block in round one and then again they change positions in round two and they're told what categories are in play so they may strategize by saying, okay, I like category two a little bit better. They're not going to say this out loud because you don't want to give even an inch of uh, space to your opponent. But they may think in their head, okay, I like this category. I'm going to charge uh, this category in round one. I'll block the other category in round two. So whoever wins two out of three rounds becomes the champ. The person who loses, if they weren't a champion they got a consolation prize but man did they give away some nice consolation prizes in terms of appliances 
trips to Vegas or Tahoe for a week, even mopeds. And mopeds, I know neither of you were really around in the late 70s. Mopeds were very popular back in the late 70s and early 80s. So, yeah, if somebody got a moped, I mean, that's probably, I'm guessing, at least $1,000, $1,200. That's a nice consolation prize. I'll be glad to take a moped. Oh, yeah. If well, I knew how to ride were, one, yeah. Yeah, if you were mobile in the 70s and early 80s, of course, in the peak of the national gas crisis, of course you want one of those things. I mean, well, who wouldn't? Well, 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 national gas crisis, but also the inflation that came in the early eighties, the rampant inflation that came in the early eighties. Yeah. A lot cheaper than buying a car. So whomever won, they went to the gauntlet of villains and this may be the most remembered bonus round in game show history, not just because of the gameplay, but also because there were 10 cardboard villains not, not really cardboard probably plywood but still 10 cutouts regardless uh that had little televisions in their bodies again this is pretty good technology for 1979 and the televisions in their bodies they're called telebellies cute little plan words there yeah telebellies that's cute <laughs> little plan words so in the gauntlet of villains the telebellies they served a couple of purposes but the main one is playing bloopers like they did in the main game. It wouldn't have a text version. It would all be oral. You'd have to pay attention and listen. And the blooper part would be the last word. There wouldn't be any sort of, okay, we're going to take a phrase from this blooper and you got to correct that phrase, or we're not going to take anything besides the last word, or we're not going to, alter anything besides the last word so you knew the part that needed to be corrected was at the end and the answers were always one word yeah it's always one word that needed to be replaced and always one word answers were needed in the gauntlet and they had about two or three seconds to answer i think it was about three seconds and if they didn't get it in time or if they got it wrong the answer would appear on the telebelly but also, the Telebelly served a couple of other purposes. When Tom Kennedy took the champion or the championship team to the Gauntlet of Villains, he'd go to the villains and say, well, how do they feel today? And there'd always be some sort of snide comment or, you know, you're going down or maybe a timely comment about Thanksgiving or Christmas or, or what celebrities playing that week doing some sort of play on words or a rhyme or a pun with uh, the celebrity's first name or last name or a combination therein. But also, if there was a gauntlet loss, there would be, again, some sort of snide comment, you know, go back to school, uh, case closed or something like that. Uh, but also, if the gauntlet was won, there would be, some again, some sort of snide comment you know, try collecting or, you know, good luck with the tax man or, or, you know, can we borrow a $20 bill or something like that? Somewhere on the internet, I saw everything that had been on the telebellies in terms of what is said to the contestant or contestants 
before the gauntlet when Tom Kennedy says, you know, how are you feeling today? But also what happens afterwards, both victories and defeats, the little comments that appear in the telebelly. So the gauntlet of villains, as I said, it's just bloopers. You have to get 10 in a certain amount of time. Now, here's where you got to pull out your slide rule. This gets a little, I don't want to say convoluted, but it could be if you are not a fan of doing math, even sort of lightweight math. So the contestant is given a base 60 seconds. However, for every $100 they earn in the main game between charging and blocking, they get one extra second. And we didn't even talk about how to earn the money on the board. Levels one through five, they have in $10 increments, 10, 20, 30, 40, $50 from level one to level five. That top row, they have $200, $350 and $500. And that's obviously where a lot of your money is made. Probably the vast majority of it because you can only get about $250 in the bottom five levels in a main game, whether you're charging or blocking. And I have not seen many blocking patterns, which were all fifties. I don't think I've seen any blocking patterns that are all fifties. So your money's made on level six, whether it's charging or blocking. So the contestant or team gets 60 seconds plus one second for every $100 they earn. And there are no partial seconds here. So if they earn like, let's say, $720, they don't get 7.2 seconds. We don't have the technology in 1979 to do that on a game show, I don't think. But also, again, that would make it a little more complex. So they just take the floor value. Okay, you had $720. You're getting seven additional seconds on top of the 60. You have 67 seconds. And the idea is just get from one to 10, beat all 10 villains, and you win $25,000, which in 1979 was the most money you could earn on a game show, I do believe, because $20,000 pyramid, you could win $20,000. And even like match game PM would have been like $21,000, I think was the maximum. So yeah, $25,000, I think was about as good as it got in... Well, no, actually, one that does beat it, and it was done once, Card Sharks, you could win $28,800. That's the one exception to the rule. Uh, if you go double, double, double all the way to the top, you can win $28,800 in Card Sharks. But still, $25,000, big payday if you can get through 10 villains. And... I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the names of those 10 villains because they are legendary. Before you do, we didn't even talk about how much $25,000 in 1979 is worth today. Oh, $25,000 back then is easily, easily $100,000. Like I said, easily $100,000 by $2,000. But yeah, I mean, if you hear Tom Kennedy talking to the contestants after gauntlet victories, what are you going to do with the money? A lot of them said, I'm going to college, I'm buying a car, and then I'm going to travel through Europe, or I'm putting a down payment on a house. And boy, if you put a down payment on a house 
in California in 1979, you are a very savvy and smart person given property prices nowadays in California. But again, uh, going back to the gauntlet, in order, you start off with Alphonse the Gangster, looks sort of like an Al Capone ripoff. Oh, Alphonse, that makes sense. Al, Alphonse. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, so some of these are a little more obvious than others, but that does make sense when you think about it. Uh, number two is Bruno the Headsman. So think of uh, like somebody at a guillotine who's going to slice your head off, and he's actually got a bloody head in his basket to sort of emphasize the point. Uh, number three, Mr. Van Laus, the landlord, and he's holding the deed. He's ready to evict you. Number four, and I think this is the only one based on a real person, Nero the Fiddler. And you can see the flames in the background, like he's uh, in Rome and he's got his fiddle and whatnot. Uh, number five, Count Nibbleneck the Vampire, because we can't use the name Count Dracula. However, they did get away with number six, Frank and his little friend Stein. <laughs> Frank and Stein. Number seven was Kid Rotten the Gunslinger. Looked like somebody straight from the uh, Old West. Number eight, Jeremy Swash the Pirate. Complete with parrot on his shoulder and uh, his scabbard and his wooden leg. Number nine, Dr. Derange the Mad Scientist. Isn't that your nickname, Chico, at work? The Mad Scientist? Dr. Derange the Mad Scientist. Yes, that is my nickname. I would love to see you put that on your ID badge. That's I'm not, I'm not, not Chico Alexander. I'm Dr. Derange the Mad Scientist. <laughs> That's not happening, Mike. Now, I know. You, you got to have job security. You got to have employment. And then number 10 is Lucretia the Witch, complete with cauldron, with a frog on the side of the cauldron, and a black cat on her shoulder. Yep. And actually, Mike, you mentioned that there was a place out there that had every uh, sort of phrase on their telly belly. Yeah. I found it. Oh. Yes. So uh, I'm not going to go through all of them. I'm just going to go through the really good ones. I'm going to actually go through the intros, which is what they have to say when Tom meets them for the first time. On the first episode in April 23, 1979, their telly bellies say, Hi, folks! Yeah, it's the premiere. They're welcoming people who are watching the show for the first time. Absolutely. And then the second episode was like, ain't we cute? Now they're bragging. And then, yeah, and then um, I think Andrea Klein would have won her third game by the April 30th, 1979 episode. And the Teletubby said, her again? <laughs> and the day after... Enough is enough. Enough is enough is enough. You can see Jay Wolpers having a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Now, Howard Wilson, who was on for at least six games. Oh, I think he was on for, I, I think it was seven games, actually. Like I, I said, at least six or seven would work, yeah. Yeah, and I think in terms of total episodes, I want to say he was on like 
eight total episodes. Yeah, well, on the June 8th episode, the Telly Belly said, Hell Fallen for. And then the June 11th episode, Villains 5, Howard 0. And the day after, On Guard, Howard! And they like to keep stats on these things, like the July 30th, 1979 episode, Villain 65, People 13. And that, I do believe, was the first episode that aired on Buzzer. And then on August 14th, they bumped it up to Villains 80, People 14. That may have been the first episode. I, I remember the first episode that Buzzer aired, they did a account as to the uh, number of gauntlets won versus number that were lost. And, and then there was just, for some reason, on September 12th, 1979, they had Kilroy was here. Oh, man. Kilroy was here. That was my sister's birthday. Birth date, actually. She was born on that day. So that's probably the episode that I saw in in the uh, waiting room when uh, my mom was in labor. Oh. Well, now every time you can think of Kilroy, you can think of that stick song and your sister's birth. October 22nd with uh, PJ Thompson having one. She'll dive in five. The next day, Nanu Nanu, because that would have been a reference to a show on another network. And now we go to November 5th, which would be the first gauntlet of celebrity. And they say for two. So, so yeah, that's the general idea is the gauntlet and the writers are having a lot of fun with the contestants. And as I mentioned earlier, Once celebrities came on, there were a lot of puns about the stars' first names and or last names. And actually, you did hear that if you listened to any Shuckapalooza episode, because our little Shuckapalooza open ended with Tom Kennedy saying after a gauntlet loss, oh, shuck. Oh, shuck. And then what else was it followed by, Mike? You're gorgeous? No, this. Starfleet regulations, that's outrageous! Oh, I should have guessed that. Why did I say you're gorgeous? Maybe because it was uh, played at the beginning of this episode? I have no idea. And again, at the end of the gauntlet, if the contestant lost, there would be some sort of snide comment. Again, like, you know, go back to school, class dismissed. Uh, something related to the holidays, you know, we ruined your Christmas or something like that. But for a win, like I said, it, it would be sort of like, okay, you're good luck collecting. Uh, do you, that was actually from the finale there, Mike. Do you want to get paid in pennies or, you know, uh, can you spare uh, 10 bucks? Or so? so, yeah, you get the idea as to some of the humor that was uh, involved in the show. Now, Anybody who won the gauntlet, they automatically retired because, as we've talked about in the past, there was a strict $25,000 limit to winning a game show on CBS in 1979. 
However, you were able to keep anything over that $25,000 that you won. So any main game money or previous gauntlet money that you won, you got to keep. And uh, if you did not succeed at the gauntlet, you got $100 for each villain. Oh. So really between the gauntlet and the main game, generally a contestant would rack up about thirteen to $1,500, which again, in 1979 money is not a bad consolation. Oh, yeah, not as it's a lot. It's good money if you can make it. And also, when you consider there was initially no cap on how many episodes you can appear on after Howard Wilson played, the person we talked about earlier, uh, he was on for seven games. They instituted a hard five-game cap. But the thing is, if you didn't win the gauntlet, but you won five times, you probably ended up with close to $8,000. That's not a bad chunk of change. Especially in an era where cars cost like $4,000. $8,000, that's two cars. That's not bad at all. I would love to lose five games and still come up with $8,000. That, of course, is still before taxes. But even after taxes, you can still afford a decent economy car in that day and age. But also, as you said earlier, basically a dollar in 1979 is equal to about $4 nowadays. So that's like winning $32,000. That's no small amount of change for quote-unquote losing. You're not a loser if you can walk away with uh, basically $32,000 nowadays. All right, so we're going to talk about stuff that we've noticed about the show. Uh, I can't speak for Chico and I can't speak for Greg, but Few is a show that I watch. If I don't see it on a daily basis because I'm at work, uh, what I usually do is, actually before we do the recording, I watched the week's pre- uh, previous episodes because I have a laptop that I use to record uh, HD signals. So I get to watch basically two hours a few before we do this podcast. And some of the stuff I've noticed. Well, first, I think after seeing the, uh, the shows for now a year or so, I think I have an idea as to like the optimal defense. What I believe you need to do defensively, well, first and foremost, you need emphasis. You need to put a block on level six. Need. If if a long shot is played, turning the tables from a two and three possibility of finding a blooper to a one and three possibility is a game changer. But also, if you don't have a block up there, going from three available bloopers to just two, the odds still say that you're going to find a blooper. There's two uh, bloopers and one block. So you need to put a block on level six. Related to that, what I've noticed is the place to, to play a initial block not a long shot block, an initial block is at 350. Then you've got to gauge how the charging team plays the board 
because you know if they tend to go to the high end, you may want to put a block at 500. If they tend to go to the low end, you may look at 200, but also at the same time, you need to use reverse psychology. So if they play on the high end, if they play 40s and 50s, you may want to put the block at 200 because you know they're playing just high values. They may want to switch it up and say, nope, I'm going to 200. And alternatively, if somebody's playing primarily lower amounts, you may want to put a block at 500. Same reason, reverse psychology. Or you could just like as a charger, you could just essentially not have a strategy and randomly pick on the board where to go, A, trying to avoid blocks, but also B, trying to confuse the charger as to where to place the long shot possibly. And also another strategy uh, in terms of blocking, as a blocker, I think it's best if for your bottom five blocks, if you put three on any level and then two on any other level. So you have two rows, one with two blocks, one with three blocks. Yes, there are three that are unprotected, but the thing is, if you can get somebody with that trap, that's going to kill them. And really, based on what I've seen on few, if you have some combination of three total blocks or missed bloopers, any combination, if you have one block and two missed bloopers or three missed bloopers or two blocks and a missed blooper or just three blocks, you're generally not going to win in terms of uh, not utilizing the long shot. And charging, I, I think the strategy there is you may want to either feign strength or feign weakness because it seems that based on reactions, the opponent can gauge where they need to block. Okay, this person was really excited about playing sports or science or pop culture, television. So I'm going to put blocks on the high end, 40s and 50s. And then what the charger should do is to go up the 10s and 20s and then go for 200. Because yes, he's coming across as being strong in that category. So play the weaker clues and zoom up the board. And there's been a lot of times that's been done where people blocked 40s and 50s on something that they thought the opponent was strong in and the opponent just went up 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 200, boom, have 20 seconds left. There's a lot of psychology in this game. I think that's another interesting facet of this. It isn't just answering bloopers. It isn't just the puns. It's also strategies, how to play the game, how to outwit your opponent. It's very thrilling on so many levels, I think. But also, in addition to the strategies, some of the moments we've seen. Now, we did mention Randy Amasia earlier. His two episodes, I think, aired the Friday episode of the second week buzzer uh, started airing a few, and the Monday episode of week three because he actually was on a Friday and Monday episode. So we did get to see that. Even though it's been online for 20-some years, it is just very refreshing to see him win again and 
we know somewhere he's like replaying this 24 seven because uh, that was his one endeavor in life was he wanted to see that second episode. He had his first since the time it aired back in 1979, but the person who was supposed to record the second episode forgot. And uh, as Randy had once mentioned, that person wasn't employed much longer where Randy was at. By coincidence, you don't get fired for not recording at co-workers few episodes, sorry. But again, just some other highlights that we've seen. First off, I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention a podcast favorite. Greg knows where I'm going with this. Yes. And if you listen to the podcast often enough, you know where I'm going with this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that bastard Charles Logan was on an October 1979 episode. But hold on, Mike, because we talked about this in episode 31. Who was the contestant he lost to, Mike? Well, we didn't talk about this in episode 31 because uh, this is sort of speculation. Yeah. We didn't know Greg Gitson was on few until his this episode aired. No, we didn't, person... even, we didn't even have the uh, bit of that bastard Charles Logan yet. No, no. We knew the possibility of a contestant who uh, dislocated his knee. And on episode 119, we actually got to see it. That bastard Charles Logan, he was the challenger against champion Stephen Matthews when Matthews, who I think admittedly said he was like 315 pounds at the time. He was a big boy. He jumped up and down, got very excited, and then the video faded to black. And Tom Kennedy with Greg Gitson on stage said, you're not going to believe this, but Stephen Matthews dislocated his knee in excitement. Uh, we'll have him back in the future. And, oh, good game, Greg. Let's give you a consolation prize. That's essentially what happened. And then they brought out two new players because, you know, you, there's no champion because your champion's in the ER. And that was like rumored for the longest time. We've talked about that online for 25 years about it happening. And people had vague memories, but it was like Halloween of uh, 2021 when we got the proof that this happened. And then fast forward to about April, I think it was about April or, or March of 2022, Buzzer showed Stephen Matthews' triumphant return in episode 184. So this is 65 episodes later. This is in the middle of the celebrity run. They had him uh, return on a Monday episode. I believe the gauntlet had been won on the previous episode. If it wasn't won, then there's a five-time champion who retired because, again, five games is the limit. But he came out to pomp and circumstance with a leg brace on and he blitzed through the villains won $25,000 and the villains put on their telebellies no jumping because they didn't want him to re-injure himself yeah. but at the same time in celebration again 315 pound Stephen Matthews picked up Tom Kennedy Oh, that was awesome. Well, at least he didn't do any jumping. That was the January 21st, 1980 episode. Two 
days after I made my premiere in a California hospital. But, uh, yeah. Uh, Stephen Matthews was last seen on the October 12, 1979 episode. Footage from it was indeed played back three months after dislocating his knee in a brace. He had shaved his beard and he won $1,000, so his gauntlet time was 70 seconds, and Mike told you everything that happened after that. Okay, Chico, I got to ask this question. So I was in the delivery waiting room when my sister was born, and uh, apparently I may have, uh, I'm pretty sure I saw the few that day. I don't remember the, the Kilroy was here thing. Is it possible that Kiesla was in the hospital waiting room two days after you were born, going to see you with few on the air. Almost certainly possible. In fact, Kiesla told me the day that me and D'Angelo came home from the hospital was the happiest day of her life. Not only did she have a little brother, she had two little brothers. And, and to this and day, we are her little baby boo-boo bears. And she also got to see Stephen Matthews kick the gauntlet's butt. So yeah. three, three great things happened that day, probably. And it was a good day. It was you know, a good day. You know what? My the day I was born wasn't a good day because freaking Ed Bigley didn't have the 30 on Batch Key Hollywood Squares. Oh, dear. <laughs> you know how disappointed I am that didn't happen? No, why don't you tell us, Greg? And t- I think, wasn't Tom Bray on that week? He didn't have the 30 either, I don't think. I don't think Tom Bray ever had the 30, but... No! Sort of... Tom Bray did not have the 30. That sucks! Yeah, we're, we're sort of getting off uh, the beaten path, though. Okay, hold on. Did we mention who did the music for Few? No, we didn't. No, no. All right, let's so, let's let's say it right now. Who did the music for Few? Alan Thick. That's right. He did do the music for Few, and well, oh, oh I no. knew it. I knew it. Hey, 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 Greg, you want to answer that phone? Okay, hold on a second. <laughs> Alan, I need to ask you something. Whenever you call, why do you always? Say hello when you're making the call. Oh, that's how we uh, do it in Canada. You, uh, you you make a call and then you say hello when someone answers the phone. Yeah. That's rather backwards of you, sir. Well, we do everything in Canada backwards. But, uh, oh, you, why, oh, you're talking about few? Why are you uh, talking about few? No oh, reason. Because you uh, did the music for Few. I did? I don't remember doing the music for Few. You totally did the music for Few. I did? It was, uh, it, was, it was a jazzy little number in your oeuvre at the time. Anybody who listens to the theme song to Wheel of Fortune from 1975 knows exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. You, not a lot of people know this, but I, I did the original theme music for Wheel of Fortune. That's right, you did, Alan. Hey, Alan, I think you know why you don't remember writing the music to few. Why? You did it in the thick of the night. 
Oh, yeah, that's probably why. I'm you know sorry. what? You know, everybody needs a dream to run on. You know, you gotta be running to the thick of the night under the city lights. That would make a really good song if you think about oh, it. Oh, yeah, it would make a great song. I should probably uh, write that right now. Hey, Greg. Yeah. Can you stop conjuring up weird dead people? <laughs> you know that he's a time traveler, Mike. We've already talked about this. Hey, whatever puts you to sleep at night, Greg? Well, thankfully, Alan's too busy writing the song. He can't hear you. What are you guys talking about? We're talking about your red TARDIS, Alex. Oh. I mean, Alan. Alex! <laughs> Alex isn't here. Uh, I got me. my Canadians. I got my time-traveling Canadians mixed up. I'm so sorry. Oh, Bertie tells me that uh, you, you finished third on Jeopardy? What the heck? <laughs> <laughs> I get this You're not supposed to know that. Well, actually, you know what? It's not important. Oh my gosh. Not important. I didn't know Alan Thick is so all knowing. I access J archive in the future, guys. Um, you can't. I have a question, Alan. Can you, if you can go to J Archive in the future, can you tell me if I'm ever going to be on the show? I can't tell you that. <laughs> Interesting how he conveniently remembers the rules of time travel. I'm talking to you in the part of the future where Chico has already appeared on Jeopardy. So why would I tell you the future about when you appeared on Jeopardy, Mike? Oh, crap. So yeah, Alan Thick wrote the music to few. Yes, they did. Well, anyway, I, I gotta go leave now. So, uh, uh th- thanks, hey, guys. You ru- hey, you run in that thick of the night, my friend. All right, well, that's that's a great idea for a song. I'm gonna write that, and uh, it's, it should be a bag and tune. I'll send you the uh, the tune when I'm done. Okay, yes, Alan. I never use the word bagging again. Thank you very much. All right, Alan, talk to you later. Say hi to Booger for us. Okay. Can you believe that, guys? I'm trying my best not to, but you're making it impossible. No, that was incredible. Alan, man. Alan has such impeccable timing. He does. But, okay, hold on. Did we mention who was the first champion on Few in 19... Oh, I I was going to get to that. I, I, I wanted to talk about some of the big moments and that's actually a good place to, to pick it up, is the f- first champion, even though if you ask her about it, she sort of doesn't really acknowledge it. She's sort of kind of blown off the question on Twitter in the past. Just say Julie, Julie Brown. Yep. Mm-hmm. She was the first champ. She was not the first gauntlet winner. She only won one episode. And the person that beat her won the first gauntlet. But yeah, she was the first champ. And we really haven't seen any other people who would later be famous. Uh, other than her and Gregory Itzen. Which it, coincid- it's her and Greg Itzen. Yeah, yeah, and coincidentally, both were on Strip Mall. So, there you That's go. coincidence. Yeah. Yeah, you know who else was on Strip Mall? Jonathan Magnum. Mm-hmm. And Loretta Fox. 
And Loretta Fox, yes. And that bastard, Chris Wilde. Oh, that's true. It had that bastard Charles Logan, and it had that bastard Chris Wilde. Other moments I want to mention. Uh, we talked about uh, Stephen Matthews with his uh, dislocated knee. The enthusiasm level of some contestants was overwhelming, to say the least. Uh, there was an episode, it was probably about a week or two after Randy's episode aired. I think it was episode 92, where one contestant gave out the longest and loudest long shot you'll ever hear. And that wasn't the only time that there was maybe a different way of doing long shot. Two celebrity moments come to mind immediately. In one week, uh, there was Marianne Mobley. And Marianne Mobley, she tried. She blanked on the word long shot. Oh, and, she, and, oh. and, she, and she said, that thing up there, you know, what's it called? And uh, 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 and then finally, after like five seconds of hemming and hawing, long shot. Charge, Marianne. Uh, 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 let's do that thing up there. What is it called? Long shot. Long shot. <laughs> and there was a little joke there. Uh, after that episode... Tom Kennedy actually had a uh, a cue card with long shot written on it and gave it to Marianne Mobley so she would never forget the long shot. But it also happened again, believe it or not, to Dick Godier. Oh. Well, 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 he wasn't really hemming and hawing saying, you know, what's that thing up there called? He just like totally blinked out. And, and he said, like, everything but long shot. And he got the same treatment. He was given a cue card that said long shot on it. And actually, going back to Marianne Mobley, when she returned for her second week with Gary Collins, she had the long shot cue card with her. That was one thing that Gary Collins said they talked about at home is, yeah, don't forget, it's called long shot. It's not called that thing up there. It's not called... Yeah, the, 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 you know, whatever terminology uh, was used or, or not used by Marianne Mobley. It's the long shot. Yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, Gary Collins was on an earlier week with Trish Stewart, who to this day, I cannot remember a single thing she was on. Young and the Restless, I believe. And actually, no, not, uh, it was Young and the Restless, I do believe. But actually, on one of the weeks that she's been on, I think she's only been on one week on buzzer uh, airings thus far, she was promoted as being on Salvage One. Oh, that's, oh. The, uh, that's the sci-fi. Andy, 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 Andy Griffith, Griffith as a junk man and an astronaut. Oh, oh, but hold on, Chico. Do you know who was an executive producer on that show? Oh, God. I cannot remember who is the producer on that okay. one. Horv Bennett. Ah, the guy who wrote Star Trek 2 and 3. And 4. And 4. Yep. Before we get to the celebrity version, 
the one observation I want to make before we get to, to the uh, celebrity few is there actually was like almost a month long and maybe even longer than a month long drought at the gauntlets. Not even joking. There was, I believe it was from like episode 94 or so until like episode 124, there were no gauntlet wins. So there were no wins for a good four to six weeks. Nice way to save on the budget, I'll tell you that. And we'll get to that in a moment when we get to Celebrity Feud because there were some really good celebrities on Few. But yeah, there's like a 30-episode dry streak at the gauntlet. That's kind of weird and kind of amazing if you think about it. So talking about Celebrity Few... Hi, Benoodles. So talking about Celebrity Few, the format changed from a civilian-only format to a civilian and a celebrity starting on November 5th of 1979. And the open changed a little bit. Same music, same general open, except instead of saying a combination guaranteed to make you say few, at least for like the first 15 weeks or so, or, or most of those first 15 weeks, the opening was changed to So pretty much the same open, but going through the celebrities really fast. And the celebrity version ran 28 weeks, which coincidentally is how long the civilian version lasted. So literally half the shows are celebrity, half the shows are regular. The first week had Carol Lawrence and Patrick Wayne. And really, Carol Lawrence, this is her only appearance on this show. And Patrick Wayne did come back for a later week. And there was one gauntlet winner that week. And that was with Patrick Wayne. And I actually wonder if that may be the reason some of these celebrities weren't brought back. Because, yeah, you don't want a celebrity who doesn't get to the gauntlet or at least doesn't win a gauntlet. So it's kind of interesting that Carol Lawrence's only appearance was that week. Week two had Carol Wayne and Sal Viscuso. And of course, Sal Viscusco was a great pyramid player. We know that. Absolutely. And Carol Wayne, we know, was great at celebrity sweepstakes. Yes. And also she was Johnny Carson's arm candy as uh, Art Fern, the That's... tea time movie uh -huh. guy. But, but also, I think we need to say this. The reason we say this is because she was married to Burt Sugarman at the time. And actually that week, believe it or not, there were three gauntlet wins. Carol Wayne had one, Sal had two. And oddly enough, Carol Wayne never came back to the show, even though she's literally sleeping with the producer. Well, she would have gotten divorced sometime before the end of 1980. That might explain it. The third week had 
Marianne Mobley, again, this is where she had her little long shot issue going against Linwood Boomer. And Marianne Mobley won one gauntlet. Linwood Boomer won three. And I think between that, three gauntlet wins, and I believe each of the other two, or at least one of the other two losses, they were at villain 10 when the time ran out. Oh. So he could have conceivably had four gauntlet wins. And I think we know based on Malcolm in the middle, he is a very smart person, a very smart writer, but also at the same time, he came across as having the personality of Pete Moss. He uh, didn't shake hands with contestants. And even after seeing contestants nudge him in the side Hey, shake my hand or whatnot. He didn't react. And I think that was just a bad look. So yeah, he's a smart player. He's a great player, but he just had like no personality. Like he didn't want to be there. And also, as far as I know, this is the only game show Linwood Boomer has ever done. This was like in the middle of his run as uh, Adam, what's his name? Adam, Adam Kendall on a little house on the prairie. So but still, like I said, he wasn't even on any other NBC shows. Uh, I don't think he was on Squares or uh, any sort of celebrity guest on anything else. Uh, week four, we've already referred to because that was the week with Didi Khan and John Shuck. Aw, Shuck. And Didi won both of her gauntlets that week. John Shuck didn't win anything Aww. in terms of gauntlets. He actually won three games that week, but went 0 for 3 at the gauntlet. 0 for 3 at the gauntlet? That's outrageous. I know, John. I know. Uh, The the following week had Rita Moreno and Richard Klein. And actually, on the Tuesday episode of that week, a very funny impromptu moment. At this time, Three's Company was recording at Television City. Actually, in the studio next to where few uh, recorded, which was uh, Studio 33. Legendary Studio 33, Bob Barker Studio, Price is Right, Match Game, Carol Burnett, you know about Studio 33. So on the Tuesday episode of that week, you actually had John Ritter coming by and making a cameo. Right after Richard Klein and his partner won a game, here comes John Ritter onto the set, put a... a, uh, like a cardigan, a sweater around Richard Klein's neck and shook Tom Kennedy's hand. It is a quickie, if you blink, you'll miss it type of thing. Charge, Leonard! Level 6, 500. 6, 500. A jug of wine, a loaf of bread, and Mao. And thou! Yes! What are you doing? Come over here. I told you, I told you I was going to get you on the show, but we do have a priority list. I'm sorry, congratulations, I'm just, shoo. I know that, bye. Come here, look at this. Who in the heck is that? (laughs) But yeah, John Ritter actually made a cameo on Few, December 14th of 79. And that week, nobody won a single gauntlet. So this may be a budget-saving maneuver after Limited Boomer took him for three gauntlets uh, 
in week three. Uh, the following week, Trish Stewart and Gary Collins. And as I mentioned earlier, Gary Collins would appear later on in the series with his wife, Marianne Mobley. And in that week, Gary Collins actually won three gauntlets out of four. And actually, when he returned with Marianne Mobley, which we're going to get to in a little bit, he actually set the winnings record for celebrities at that point because he had won at least one gauntlet that week. So he surpassed Linwood Boomer in terms of gauntlets won. On week seven, we had Robert Mandan and Michael Young. Uh, Robert Mandan from Soap, we've talked about him plenty of times. Michael Young, as we mentioned earlier, I do believe, he was on Kids Are People Too. Very popular show in the late 70s, early 80s for, for the youngins. And no gauntlets were won that week either. So we're in a real dry spell. Uh, two of the previous three weeks, there were no gauntlet wins. And then we get to week eight. Sal Viscuso returns, and he's playing against Elaine Joyce. And actually, Elaine Joyce's husband makes a cameo in one episode, Bobby Van. And actually, that was the only time that week Elaine Joyce got to the gauntlet. He did a surprise cameo at the gauntlet, and actually the, the telebellies said, uh, and now a surprise, or and now here's Bobby Van. And Bobby Van came up from like the back steps behind the gauntlet, and he's there shaking hands with, with Tom Kennedy and you know, getting a hug from Elaine Joyce. And sadly, she didn't win that gauntlet, the only chance she had that week. I would like to introduce you to 10 of the most money-grabbing muggers who ever stood between a dancing housewife and her money, and here they are. You dirty villains, you. It says, ladies and gentlemen, Bobby Van. There he is. Hey, Bobby. How are you? Have you met these people? You know Robin, of course. I don't know Robin. But I thought maybe you'd like to meet the lady in purple. She looks pretty good, doesn't she? She looks insane. And so do you, Bobby. Listen, you're going to win $25,000. No, you are. You're going to win a four, okay? And I'm going to go over there and watch news. We'll see you later, all right? And you made me laugh. Okay, all right, Bobby. See you later. Hey, thank you for dropping by, pal. Now, that should inspire you, Robin. He came over here just to wish you good luck, and so you got to do it. For Bobby, okay? Uh, for Bobby, yeah. Would you do it yeah. for Bobby? Oh, yeah, sure. All right, now, one of you... I do it for Bobby all the time. I mean... <laughs> and Sal Viscuso won one gauntlet that week. Uh, and also, we should add, this aired in early 1980 and probably one of the last cameo appearances by Bobby Van because he would pass later in 1980. Well, actually, he was also on a week of Beat the Clock. Oh, yeah, we're going to get to Beat the Clock. We're going to do a Beat the Clock revisited later on this episode since we did talk about Beat the Clock uh, in episode 31. Week 9 had Gina Hecht and uh, Brian Patrick Clark. And only Brian won uh, a gauntlet that week. He won one gauntlet. Week 10 was Joan Prather and Jay Johnson. The Monday episode started with Stephen Matthews returning. And we talked about that earlier. He came back to Pomp and Circumstance. Uh, he obliterated the villains, won well over $28,000. 
and picked up Tom Kennedy, probably against his doctor's advice with a bad knee. And then after he won, they brought out two new contestants. And Jay Johnson actually won two gauntlets that week. So actually there were three won that week if you include Stephen Matthews' gauntlet. Week 11 had Roxy Roker and Richard Paul. Richard won two gauntlets that week. And Roxy, she tried. She got to one gauntlet and did not win. Week 12, Dee Dee Khan and Patrick Wayne. Patrick Wayne again. And Dee Dee Khan again. So these are two returning players. Each won a gauntlet that week. Week 13, Meredith McRae and John Walmsley from the Waltons. And John Walmsley sort of falls under the category I mentioned earlier. Bless him, he's trying. He did not do well that week. Uh, Meredith, in the meantime, she did win a gauntlet. The following week, week 14, Rita Moreno and Ross Martin. And Ross actually won two gauntlets that week. And Rita, we can't say anything bad about Rita, even though she didn't go to any gauntlets. Week 15 had Marianne Mobley and Gary Collins, as we've referred to a couple of times this episode. And Marianne Mobley actually won two gauntlets, and Gary Collins won just the one. But again, he was sort of crowned the money winner uh, for few at that point because he had won four gauntlets. So he had won well over $100,000 for his contestant partners. Week 16 was Jamie Farr and Dick Godier. We talked about that earlier with Dick Godier having the long shot issues. But also, it's kind of interesting, uh, on the Tuesday episode, uh, March 5th of 1980, the Oregon Beaver cheerleaders were in the audience. I think what Mike meant to say is the Oregon State Beavers were in the audience, since Oregon is the Ducks, obviously. And actually, at the end of the show... Tom brought him up on stage. There were probably about 12 of them, and they're supposed to do a cheer for few. And uh, there may have been a little bit of stage fright because, oh, I didn't think we were going to be doing this. And But it was just interesting to see that. And nobody won a gauntlet that week. But to make it even worse, Dick Godier, I mentioned his issues with the long shots. He didn't even win a single match that week. Oh. Never made it to the gauntlet. So if you were paired up with Dick Godier that week, that's just horrible luck. Week 17 had Marsha Wallace and Clifton Davis. And actually, each of them won one gauntlet. Week 18, and this actually just literally aired this past week, or part of it aired this past week. The first two episodes aired back in January, actually, but also reran uh, a week ago. And the last three episodes of this week aired uh, earlier this week as we're recording this. Betty White and Richard Klein. And actually, Betty only went to two gauntlets, but she won one. Richard went to four gauntlets, but didn't win any of them. And now we're actually picking up where we're at now in the run. As of today, September 23rd, yesterday's episode uh, that aired on the 22nd, was the Monday episode of this week, which is week 19, Carolyn Jones and Michael Young. We mentioned Michael Young from Kids Are People 2. Carolyn Jones 
we know as Marticia Adams. And really, this is one of the last shows that she did. She did uh, Tattletales back in like 82. But that was like it. I, I think this is probably her second to last appearance because there weren't a lot of game shows uh, back in the early 80s. But also, she did uh, pass away uh, in 1983. So we know one episode is aired. Unfortunately, we don't know the results uh, in terms of you know who won and gauntlets and whatnot. So sort of from this point forward, we're going to just give the celebrity names. Uh, in week 20, uh, Elaine Joyce returns with John Saxon, who we just mentioned in episode 309. Week 21 was Trish Stewart and Jamie Farr, which two episodes are known to be on the internet, I do believe, from that week. So they're there if you want to see them before they actually air. Uh, week 22 had Marilyn McCoo and Grant Goodeve. And I think footage from that week is online too. And then uh, we had Meredith McRae and Jack Carter in week 23. Joan Prather returned with Robert Mandan in week uh, 24. Week 25 had Roxy Roker and Dick Godier once again, which is interesting since neither of them won a gauntlet. And actually Dick Godier, the last time he was on, didn't win a single thing. So I don't know if this is a budget move or a chance at redemption. Week 26, Marianne Mobley and Gary Collins again, because, hey, they're just such a great couple. And Gary Collins is taking you for $100,000. Uh, week 27 is Marsha Wallace and Robert Vaughn. And then the last week, and actually I say last week very loosely because it looks like there's only two episodes that aired this week, Betty White and John Saxon. Yes. And what a way to go out. Betty White and John, well, not necessarily the John Saxon part, but Betty White. And actually a rule they had for those last couple of episodes is, uh, so they ended on a gauntlet. They didn't want to end in the middle of a game because that wouldn't be fair and whatnot. They uh, had a rule instituted that if you won the first two games, you played a solo round against, again, air quotes, the villains. And that actually happened on the last episode where one team won the first two rounds. So they went to the gauntlet, but got to play for more money against the house, if you will. And it's kind of interesting what pattern the villains use. And again, this may be the Jay Wolpert humor slash sarcasm in play. If you look at it, it's a picture of a mill finger. Basically what the blocking strategy employed by the villains was, was level three, 20, 30, 40, level four, 30, level five, 30, level six, 350. And if you look at that, it's an inverted T which, if you look at it the right way, is a middle finger. Make your own theories. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Jay Wolpert loves giving one giant beep you to the producers and or the network right before his shows are canceled. So, yeah, that's the show. Like I said, we, we went from essentially 12 episodes to now we have like 175 out there. It's a great show. If you have never seen it, you're doing yourself uh, injustice. 
Right now it's on at 8.30, Monday through Friday, 8.30 Eastern on Buzzer. And you can get Buzzer just about anywhere, especially through streaming services. If you use Pluto TV, it's there. If you use Tubi, I'm sure it's there. Roku Channel, I know, carries it. There's plenty of options for you to get Buzzer. Or you can watch through their website. And if you haven't seen few, I encourage you, take half an hour out of your day. You're going to laugh. You may be a little offended because, admittedly, this is 1979 where political correctness doesn't exist. So there may be stuff that wouldn't play in 2022. And sometimes they censor it. Sometimes they cut it out. But there's been times where they keep it in there, even in spite of the political incorrectness. Well, now Fuse done, I think we need to give equal time to the second part of episode 31. We're going to do Beat the Clock Revisited. Oh, I can't wait. Episode 310, part B. Submission number 891B.5. Beat the Clock in 1979. Beat the Clock aired on CBS from September 17th of 1979 to February 1st of 1980. Throw it. Throw it. Swing it. Swing it. Grab it. Nab it. Snap it. Chop it. Pop it. Pop it. Smash it. That's the way every day you can play Beat the Clock. Now here's the star of the all-new Beat the Clock, Mr. Marty Hall. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, and welcome to Beat the Clock. Here's the revisited part of Beat the Clock. I've seen the finale. It stunk. Oh, (laughs) so, okay. In short, your review is basically... It stinks. (laughs) That sums it up nicely. We could have heard from Jay Sherman, from the critic, but you're absolutely right about that. That's our revisited version of Beat the Clock. I saw the finale. I got sort of closure in that regard in terms of seeing the final episode. Still haven't seen like two or three episodes from that final week. But yeah, I I was not thoroughly impressed. Mm. Anything you guys want to say about few? We're not going to even touch Beat the Clock. That was just basically, again, uh, just to give equal time to Beat the Clock since we talked about both shows uh, back on episode 31. I think we said everything we needed to say in 31. So uh, Between 31 and 310, absolutely. Yeah. So, few. hey, we love it around these parts. A lot of people love it. May not be everybody's cup of tea, but back in 1979 and 1980, they tried. They tried their little punny hearts out, but unfortunately, few just ended up being a thing on TV. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a really good thing on TV and one that is adored even to this day. 
Yeah. Of course, we have so much more to adore on our website. It was a thing on TV.com. The previous 309 episodes, good, bad, or somehow indifferent, in addition to live watches, mini-sodes, and a special event series that Greg and I, or Greg and Mike, or Mike and I like to do from time to time. Oh, hold on. I got a big announcement to make. I got a new solo project that I'm doing for Place to Be. Okay, are you ready for this? Now, I told Mike this, but Chico, you don't know about this. I don't know about this. I am going to review and watch all eight episodes from 1993 of WWF All-American Wrestling featuring Joe Fowler as co-host with Bobby Heenan. Yes! You're crazy. You know what's going to be called? What's it going to be called? All-American Joe. And a hush of silence goes over Chico's microphone. And King Arthur is going to be very proud of all eight episodes. That's just about as pointless as Titania owning the rights to the name She-Hulk after oh, She-Hulk Oh, hold on. We haven't talked about episode three through six through She-Hulk. <laughs> so I guess we now have to finally up-to-date Mike because we were stuck on episode two. We didn't mention episodes three and four two weeks ago because Mike was not on the second episode. And we didn't mention episode five last week's taping. So let's bet, let's talk, get him up to date. All right, on all right. I'll, I'll get him up to date. Okay, here's the main bits you need to know. In episode three, Jennifer has to represent Abomination, aka Emil Blonsky, and she needs the help of the Sorcerer Supreme Wong, played by Benedict Wong, to do so. All the while, the superhuman Law Division needs to help out an Asgardian shapeshifter. This shapeshifter pretended to be Megan the Stallion because, it and was... they ended up having a twerk off. It was oh, the epic. real the real Megan the Stallion appears in the end of the episode. Yes, with She Hulk, and they twerk at the end of the episode. But that isn't all right. Episode four. Let's get into the main thing that I should have mentioned last week. Okay. Wait, 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 wait. Pump the brakes for a second. You said they twerk at the end of the episode? Yes! Yes! Oh my gosh. (laughs) Okay, but episode four. Now, I should have mentioned this last week. Now, Mike, I talked to you about how Yuri Geller's spoon trick sucks and how it's terrible. Yeah, Yeah, and I agree with you. Chico, I think this other magician... Sonny Blaze? Yeah, he sucks also. He sucks He's worse terrible. than Yuri He's terrible. He's he has... terrible. People in magic are out to get his ass. He's that terrible. Yeah, because his one quote-unquote trick is that portal thing that the sorcerers do. And okay, With the sling ring? With the sling ring. But okay, explain who he gets to volunteer on stage for it. This is amazing. He brings on stage this girl from the crowd who is a little tipsy. Her name is Madison. It is spelled M is M A D Okay, it is he volunteers Madison that is two Ns, a Y instead of the I, but not where you think it is. And what is your name, young lady? Madison with two Ns, one Y, but it's not where you think. Yeah, Madison. That's her name. 
but she ends up somehow in Wong's place. Whoops! <laughs> and she's and coincidentally while Wong is watching The Sopranos, and she spoils seats from The Sopranos for him. To his, to his annoyance. <laughs> but this magician, Donnie Bryce, he sucks. Okay. He's terrible. He's awful. That's all you need to know. But okay, in episode four at the end, what's the big twist at the end of episode four? Titania sues Jennifer. Over the rights to She-Hulk. Yes, because it turns out Titania... Legally owns She-Hulk, and that feeds into episode five. Yeah, where She-Hulk is represented by Wiki from Girls 5 Eva. Yeah. A.K.A. the divinely amusing Renee Elise Goldsberry. Yeah, we love her. So they get the rights back to the She-Hulk name for Jennifer. But also, I think, doesn't like one of the other people at Jennifer's law firm, he's trying to buy sneakers... He's trying to buy these Iron Man sneakers. I want to say that's what happens because because B plot because P, yeah, Pug tries to get help from Nikki to that a new shoe called the Iron Man threes. The Iron Man threes, but also we find out that there's like this market of bootleg Avengers merchandise. There really is. Yeah, Mike, it's the crappiest looking merchandise you've ever seen. It's terrible. It's terrible. That's terrible. But also, there's a big twist at the end of the episode because Jennifer is meeting this, like, I guess, fashion designer for, like, all her, like, legal suits and stuff. I guess he designs, like, all this stuff for, like, all the superheroes and stuff. And then the big twist at the end of the episode, which we briefly see, Jacob, say it. (sighs) Daredevil. Yeah, we see his mask. At the end of the episode. You see the mask of Daredevil. At the end of the episode, hinting that he'll be in later in the series. So, yeah, we've said three, four, and five. We'll wait till next week to talk about episode six and episode seven. So, we'll leave it off in episode five. I'd also like to remind you that uh, not only do we have a presence on YouTube, but also most social media. We are on Facebook at It Was a Thing on TV podcast. We're on Twitter at It Was a Thing on TV. Likewise, Instagram, we're on at It Was a Thing on TV. And coming up next week, we got a lot of baseball coming up. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting that we talk about that. Well, obviously, next week is going to be the last weekend of the regular season. But also, every one of us has a vested interest in the playoffs at this point. Yep. Greg's Mets are definitely going to the playoffs. The Yankees, Chico's team, definitely going to the playoffs. And the Guardians game just went final. The Guardians won. The White Sox lost. So our magic number is three. So we're going to the playoffs, it looks like. Easy. Yeah, but also the Browns, uh, it was supposedly easy for them when they were up two touchdowns with under two minutes left. 99.9 win per... No, boy. Don't even remind me. Do not even remind me. Hey, I got your... Hold on a second. I got your answer right here. Yeah, Joe Flacco. He's elite, according to PFT. 
<laughs> so yeah, uh, two of our teams are in, and probably by the time you hear this, the third team will be in. Gosh, we can only hope. I don't want a Browns collapse. This place, talking about Cleveland, will probably have a nuclear meltdown if the Guardians don't make the playoffs. At least the Browns won last night. Yeah. And the still- city of Cleveland will implode if the Guardians do not make the playoffs with a 99.9 percentage right now. Just you, saying. And you still have 2016 with the Cavs. I'm glad you didn't mention 2016 with the Indians. Oh, yeah. I forgot but, but, they blew a 3 1 lead, too. Oh, God. Why, Greg? Why, yeah. Greg? Why are you poking the bear? You know better than that. But hey, you know what? 2022, youngest team in baseball. We're younger than our AAA team. There's some fun times ahead, at least until people want to get paid. Oh, boy. Yeah, they'll be on the Mets in five years. Essentially, yeah. With all that Steve Cohen money. So before this whole enterprise goes completely off the rails, too late. Just a reminder, on Monday, we have a baseball show. Yep. And then on Thursday, we'll talk about a shiny disc. Mm-hmm. But also next week, another baseball episode, a mini-sode. Yes. Something that we discovered, when was this, Greg? Maybe about five months ago, six <sighs> months ago? Uh, no, I think it was like sometime during the summer. Oh, okay. So it was maybe about three months Three months ago? Oh, my yeah. gosh. That, that, yeah. that's the lo- I'm sorry. That's the longest three months in history. But yeah, we, we found something that we feel we need to talk about in a mini-sode that is related to baseball. We'll keep it at that. So next week, episodes 311, 312, and mini-sode 22 will be coming your way. Right here at It Was a Thing on TV. Don't forget the website, itwasathingontv.com. Until Monday when we come to you with that baseball-themed episode, stay safe. Tell your friends to tune in and enjoy your weekend. Bye. Greg Roars out. Wow! Leonard Bernstein, our current champ, has just won another game. Now, this will be your third attempt. Incidentally, we have a, a rule on the show. You're only allowed to go five times. But this is number three for you. Yes. And so you and Rita, when we come back, we'll have a chance at 25000 So far, he has $3,230. What do you have coming up, Rita? Oh, the holiday in Condado Beach in Puerto Rico. The week of New Year's Eve. Isn't that great? They'll be lucky people to have you there. And we're going to see you on Three's Company, which is on every week. Tuesday nights. There you go. And we're going to see you next time right here on Celebrity. Some of our departing contestants will receive a seven-piece performer gourmet cutlery set with extra sharp chrome stainless steel blades and Ebony Fleetwood handles. Dishwasher safe from Washington Forge. From Polonex, handheld in Swedish-style deep heat massagers to help ease tension and relax tired muscles. Hallmark lighting estimates, pen and pencil sets, and your choice of walnut, cordia, teak, tulip wood, rosewood, and African windsy wood. Distinctive Hallmark gifts and totes compact umbrella. A great gift opens big enough for two, falls small in a flash. Totes a great gift for men or women.
This is Rod Roddy speaking. Celebrity is a Jay Walford presentation in association with the Bud Austin Company. Stay tuned for The Price is Right over most of these CBS stations.